This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, some Livingston Parish residents fear a proposed carbon sequestration project below Lake Moripa could permanently destroy the lake's delicate ecosystem. And the city signed a $1.3 million contract last week with a company to provide an alternative dispatch program to respond to 911 calls related to mental health or behavioral health crises with mental health professionals instead of police, though a similar pilot program launched last year appears to have not been very successful. And changes are afoot in our newsroom here at The Lens. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Thanks, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Joshua. Hey, how's it going? Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. More, uh, good afternoon, actually. Josh, first up with you, state political and business leaders have been pushing carbon capture and sequestration as a way to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions without putting the state's petrochemical industry out of business. But there are concerns about the effectiveness of the plan, its safety, and the potential impacts on the environment. You focused in on one major proposed carbon sequestration project and the pushback it's getting from some residents. First, tell our listeners about this blue hydrogen plan and what the company running it intends to do with the carbon. Sure, absolutely. So um, there is this proposed project that would take place in uh, Ascension Parish in a, a community called Burnside. Um, it's as, as, as you said, it's a quote, blue hydrogen uh, project. And what, what that essentially means is that um, this um, facility would be taking natural gas, which is largely composed of methane, to the tune of like 70 to 90% uh, composed of methane. And it would be breaking down that natural gas or, or methane gas into carbon dioxide and um, also um, into uh, hydrogen. So the, the, the hydrogen should be used as, as a carbon-free fuel um, that you could burn without um, emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which is, of course, contributing uh, to, to climate change. But the, the carbon dioxide would, would be used in this case. The idea is, is to actually take that and store it uh, deep underground into these uh, geological formations. And so the plan would be to pipe this carbon dioxide um, that's, that's a you know byproduct of this process, this blue hydrogen process, and pipe it down um, underneath Lake Moripa, which, which is just west of Lake Pontchartrain, and um, pipe it down like 7,000 feet below the lake, so more than a mile down there, and to permanently store it. That's at least the idea. There are questions, though, that um, the, the residents who live in the area and environmental groups in general um, have raised about um, the effect that, though, that this project might have on, on the environment and, and public health. One of, the, one of the concerns they have is you know, to, to the, the, the ecosystem of, of the lake. It calls to mind some of the nuclear facility, nuclear waste storage that happens in the deserts in Nevada, for example. But uh, the big difference there is it's in the desert. 
in an uninhabited and, and unarable area, but this is quite a different environment here. So tell us about the, the guy you spoke to who makes his living off that lake. Yeah, so I, I had the, uh, the distinct pleasure of going out onto the lake with um, a gentleman, gentleman by the name of John Hoover, um, who's a lifelong uh, Louisiana resident. And he's been a full-time uh, crabber, uh, self-employed since he was 18. And um, he's, he's in his 50s now, in his mid-50s. And almost every day that ends in Y, he's, he's out there, you know, before the crack of dawn by himself, going out onto either Lake Maurepas or Lake Pontchartrain, which, which is connected uh, to Lake Maurepas through, through these different, you know, they, they, they call them passes. But anyway, John is out there, and that's how he makes his living. He, uh, he and his wife built a retirement home on the lake that they hope to pass down to their daughter one day. And yeah, I mean, uh, he, he, he's, he's out there on his boat that's 23 years old, and the crab that he catches, he uh, serves uh, to the, the local market, the statewide market, and, and, and it, it goes all the way to the East Coast, um, you know, all the way to, to, to Maryland, which, which used to have a really thriving uh, crab industry itself. And it still does to, to some extent, I'm sure, but it's been adversely affected by um, the effect of, of pollution over time. And he's, frankly, he's scared to death, mm. basically. In, in, in the short term, that the seismic survey, what they're talking about, is, is going to really screw with the, the lake bed, which is where these crab go to, to burrow down in the winter months to hibernate. And the seismic survey, which the state has done before, but the, the seismic survey um, is essentially a process where they go and they go into the lake bed itself and set off these, these dynamite charges. There are gonna be 17,000 dynamite charges in the lake bed. And by virtue of doing that, it's like sonar for, for a bet, you know, like the vibration bounces off the geological formations that are all the way down underneath the lake bed and, you know, it bounces back and you can judge like, you know, what you're working with essentially. But he's scared to death that those charges are, are going to, you know, screw with the, these crabs, um, hibernation and migration patterns because they move between Lake Maurepas and Lake Pontchartrain. He's also scared that this survey might go uh, further than, than it's meant to in mm. time. Um, they're saying that they they have planned, the, the company Air Products is saying that they are planning to start it uh, in early October, which which is now, or in a, I, I, I think the actual date was, was like October 12th, so something like that. But, you know, in, in, in the very near term, they're looking to start this project and, and it's going to go through the spring but they don't have their permits set up yet, uh, the, the, the totality of their permits that they need for this project to, to do the seismic survey. So he's worried about the timeline. It, it, it's going to be extended. And the spring, of course, is his prime harvesting season. Um, he, he's also worried about these um, wellheads that are going to protrude six to ten feet above the surface of the lake. And Air Products is saying, don't worry about these really... Um, in terms of their size, you know, we're, we're, listen, we're sensitive that there are these platforms that are new, but, you know, they're, they're, the size is really quite 
negligible. Like I, I, the, the analogy they, they used is that it's, it's going to be like a single dice on a football field for some and, and a single index card on a football field for others. But the fishermen and the crabbers and the recreational boaters who have used this lake, you know, for time immemorial, let's say, um, have, have used it without these, uh, you know, these wellheads protruding out above the lake. And, and that for John, you know, he's saying that uh, people use a lake before uh, dawn and after dusk when visibility is low and, mm. and that someone's going to get killed is, 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 is what he said. And that's not to mention the, the, the long-term effects of the open question of whether or not you can actually permanently store carbon underground like this at a commercial scale. That, that's, that's unproven. So there are all these concerns. And basically his question is, why in the world would you do it in Lake Maripa? Of, of all the places you could do it, why do it here in this beautiful, pristine, important lake. Why Why would you even think about doing it here? And to my mind, that seems like a really apt question. So it is an apt question. I had, you know, the local, you know, par- parish uh, authorities, state, you know, state government, have we have we heard any answers on, on why this has to happen under Lake Moripa? Great question, uh, Charles. So at this, special meeting um, last week in Livingston Parish, um, this question was, was raised, you know, why why under Lake Maripa of all places? And, and the company representatives stood up and they said, we thought about this deeply. We've mapped it all out. One of our primary concerns is leakage. So mm-hmm. we don't want this this carbon that we're trying to sequester to leak out into these uh, existing wells that that are part of the landscape that dot the landscape you know all over the place so we've drawn these different um uh concentric circles i guess if you will um we we, we've done the math in terms of the radius of of where the optimal place is to put the you know this this uh geological storage for the carbon and lake maripa is great because it's far enough away from these other wells and we don't want the carbon seeping out into the other wells. One of the questions that one of the state representatives asked was, hey, how come you don't, you don't just build a bigger pipeline and pipe it down to the Gulf of Mexico? It, it'll be, instead of a 35-mile pipeline, it might be like, what, 100 or 150-mile pipeline. I mean, that, that's pretty reasonable, right? I mean, you, 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 you're the ones, this company's boasting about their this amazing intricate pipeline system that they have that stretches, you know, to, to Houston and crosses the Mississippi River a couple times. Um, it's like this amazing pipeline that's never ever leaked. You know, why don't why don't you just pipe it down to the Gulf of Mexico and just leave Lake Maripa alone? And and the guy got up um, and he's like, well, cost. It yeah. would be, it would yeah. be cost <laughs> prohibitive for us to to pipe it down to the Gulf of Mexico. And as you might imagine, that particular answer didn't exactly go over so well. Did you talk to Mr. Hoover at all uh, about how he feels, you know, it, you know, take Lake Maripa out of it. The carbon capture, well, at the federal, state, and local uh, levels, and uh, it, it, you know, here, here in, uh, throughout Louisiana, has been sort of pushed as a way that, you know, we can mitigate 
we can mitigate greenhouse gas emissions without too much disruptions, too much disruption to the industries that are responsible for a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions. Basically, basically a way that you know we can do, we you know we can do uh, you know sort of fight or at least mitigate global warming without putting the oil and gas and petrochemical industries out of business. And I would assume that with a lot of people in Louisiana, where the oil and gas industry is is such a large employer that, you know, a lot of people, you know, despite what many environmentalists say, which is that, you know, this is, this is not a great technology. This is not something, you know, we we really should be trying to move away from oil and gas. But anyway, I I think that that logic that, you know, we can, we can mitigate without disrupting um, might resonate with a lot of people in Louisiana. So did you talk to him about that at all? I mean, has, did he have feelings about it before this project? Does he have a a different feeling about it more generally now um, that he knows sort of the implications of this project? To to be perfectly honest, it, we, we didn't really talk at length, uh, you know, uh, about his uh, feelings about the technology itself, like kind of mm-hmm. div- divorced from this particular project with... Um, I see. With like Marpa, specifically with, with John. I, I think it'll be interesting to see as we're seeing more of these projects pop up in more and more places across across the state. If you know, if people's feelings about uh, about carbon capture and sequestration, and you know, sort of as a result of that, their feelings about you know the oil and gas industry and what we're going to do about about climate change in Louisiana may change when they see what these carbon sequestration projects look like in their own backyards. I think that's absolutely totally valid observation, Charles. And, you know, what's what's interesting um, about this conversation is that there, there are certain dynamics at play here um, that kind of might uh, lend itself, let, lend themselves to, to kind of interrogate even the... Um, you know the 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 wisdom of, of pursuing a, a project like this, in terms of you know the the volatility in, in the natural gas market that we're seeing because you know, a number of factors, not least of which is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, and um, the the fact that renewable energy sources uh, the the price for those those options are becoming more attractive, um, you know. Not exactly by the day, but that's certainly the, the trend line in which they're moving. One of the interesting things here is that um, there is this underlying uh, tax incentive that is part of the, cal- the calculus for these companies, aside from the, the, the fact that it's, it's a technology that they're familiar with and, and uh, it's, it's not really outside their, their wheelhouse, but um, there's this um, uh, tax incentive at the federal level called uh, under Internal Revenue Code Section 45Q that uh, Congress just uh, made more attractive with the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, that uh, legislation increased that uh, tax credit to $85 per ton for sequestering this kind, uh, for sequestering carbon in this way. So, you know, that that would mean that a company like uh, Air Products for this project would uh, be set to benefit to, to the tune of upwards of... Um, Four hundred twenty-five million dollars in, in tax credit. So, you know, there, there, there's also that interesting factor here that that's part of the dynamic in, in terms of you know decision making for, for these companies. Okay, and and then I, I you know, I had another something something interesting you brought up. So you, you said that this location sounds like primarily because of 
it, it, it cost, but uh, but also uh, you know also other other places in that area that would would have a similar cost, they would run into other wells. Are we talking about like old uh, you know old or or still working oil and gas wells here? I I believe and. Don't quote me on this, but I, I believe that these are um, defunct wells that are still, um, you know, extant. They're still there, but, you know, right. I, I think, you know, it's... it's there are plenty, of, there are plenty of those, yeah, so that makes sense. So what would, what is the danger of leakage into, into those old wells? Did they explain that? So, I mean, my impression is that the, they, that leakage into those wells would, would essentially mean that you know that would be outside of their locus of control I and that yeah. you know yeah with with, the, with these well heads that they have you know they're they're able to control the you know regulate control monitor the the pressure and everything and if it gets into these this this other uncontrolled infrastructure with these old wells then it's it's outside of their outside of I mean it, it kind of sounds like the answer to the question like why do this on such a pristine piece of nature is like precisely because it's so pristine there are these old wells you know? yeah Nick. no that's uh, a good point <laughs> that's a good point what so what so okay so they they don't want to have leakage going into the into these wells what is sort of you know what sort of hazards come with leakage say into a lake it it, it kind of depends on who you ask um you know the the representative from Air Products for one was was really trying to downplay that um, uh, eventuality. He, he was saying that it would be all diluted in the the water and the, and the brine down there that it like wouldn't rise at like a really noticeable clip. And you might not, not want to quote me on this exactly, but this is kind of just my impression um, that I took away from the meeting. But you know, to to for for John, uh, let's say John Hoover, um, he he's afraid that if there's if there's uh, you know a swell of this carbon dioxide coming up in the lake, I mean it could it could for one you know kill his his engine as he's mm-hmm. you know, uh, motoring across the lake. Um, it it could it could harm the 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 people sitting um, outside for lunch at one of the you know, one of the cafes, the one of the lakefront cafes. You, you don't want to be really exposed if you can help it to like, you know, a whole swell of uh, carbon carbon dioxide. Concentrated carbon dioxide. Yeah. What What's interesting is that the 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 storage, the, the injection wells that would be integral in this process uh, are a very unique kind of injection wells. They're they're called class six. And the secretary of the Louisiana Department of Natural Resources, Tom Harris, was speaking at this meeting, and he was up there saying, "We've been doing this for a hundred years, Louisiana. This is not new. We've been we've been doing these injection wells for a long time. We're good at it. Um, we can do it safely. We can do it properly. You know, the implication being, my impression was, everybody just just everybody just relax. Everybody just take a deep breath. Just relax. We're, we know what we're doing." The problem with that statement is that Louisiana doesn't have any Class Six wells that I know of. There, 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 there are only two. The EPA has approved um, seven, uh, more than seven hundred thousand permit applications for injection wells. 
only two of those are for active class six wells. Mm. So, you know, with all due respect to Tom Harris, this is a new frontier in, in, in that regard. And, you know, I was, I was left having taken him at his word because I'm, I'm learning, you know, as just somebody going through this process. I, I took him at his word. And then, you know, later as I'm reporting, it's like, uh-oh, you know, yeah. Louisiana mm-hmm. has thousands of class two wells, but I, none, no uh, Not class like six this. wells. And, right. and that would have seemed like, you know, a pertinent um, piece yeah. of information to share with, with these concerned residents. You know, and, and, and also, um, Louisiana has applied for primacy with these class six wells. And, he, you know, Tom Harris also didn't mention that. He was saying during the meeting that, you know, the EPA is going to be intimately involved in this process of uh, they're, they're, they're going to have a, a real role in oversight, soliciting public comment. So trusting the EPA. But, you know, there's a chance that between now and then, Louisiana might have primacy and therefore the EPA wouldn't be as involved. So it, it was just interesting, you know, what we shared and what wasn't shared with these residents. Or down the road, we change administrations and the EPA entirely changes also along with it. That's also a good point, Karen. Um, yeah, we would have a totally different EPA. Exactly. Yeah. Has the parish president come out in favor? So it's, it's interesting. The, the parish has actually um, enacted a one-year moratorium on injection wells because there's this project uh, in Lake Maurepas, and then there's a separate project um, that would involve similar technology. But there's an open question as to whether or not that would apply to the lake, because um, the lake, as I understand it, and I've I've asked around uh, for clarification, um, but the lake bed, I believe, is, is, um, is actually under the purview of the state the 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 lake bed itself the, the terra firma there I, I i guess you could say you know there, there's a question as to whether or not this moratorium at the parish level would would apply, apply. And the attorney for air products was saying that nope it wouldn't apply this would be a matter um you know this this is between us and the the permitting authorities mm. okay uh, I encourage everyone who's listening, if they haven't read the story, to to read the story because it's beautifully written. It's a very uh, complicated and technological um, subject, but you've written it in a really human and beautiful way. It's it's a great story. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Okay, Nick, up next with you. Last week, the city signed a $1.3 million contract with a nonprofit called Resources for Human Development to provide an alternative dispatch service to respond to 911 calls 
related to mental health or behavioral health crises with mental health professionals as opposed to police. This kind of program is advocated for by criminal justice reform advocates, city leaders, and healthcare professionals. They've been talking about this kind of response for years. The goal is to reduce interactions between people in mental health crisis and the police. They're set to start responding to calls citywide this coming summer. But in August of last year, the city announced that they were implementing a pilot program to do something similar. However, the goal, uh, it turns out that that didn't work the way they had um, wanted it to. So can you explain what's going on here? I can, I can try. Thanks. The, um, <laughs> you know, best of my understanding. So as you said, this has been something that, that city leaders and advocates have, have pushed for um, for several years and conversations, you know, after the summer of 2020 with George Floyd, there was really a lot of talk around trying to reduce the interaction between police, reduce unnecessary police interactions, and particularly, um, you know, with regards to, to mental illness, there was an understanding that the police should not be the ones responding to these calls. People with mental illness are, are much more likely to be killed by the police you know, police interactions can frequently exacerbate some of the, the issues that, that people are having. So, you know, there's this discussion around how to go ahead and do this. It's been done in other cities where uh, 911 calls for mental health emergencies are routed through a special behavioral health response team who then go out to the scene without police and attempt to provide services and, and do crisis stabilization and things like that. So last summer, the city council set up a, a task force to kind of study the issue. And a few months later, they also announced a pilot program where certain NOPD districts, when calls came in um, to the Orleans Parish Communications District, who handles all 911 calls. Yeah. So they would route the calls to Metropolitan Human Services District, which is a state agency that provides a range of behavioral health services. And they do crisis intervention as well, but not through 911 traditionally. So this is a new program where they were going to connect 911 calls to a Metropolitan Human Services District to do a response. The goal of this pilot, as it was announced, was, you know, basically to help shape kind of a more robust program um, that, would, that would go citywide and, and really be responding to the majority of these, uh, these calls. So that went live in, in August of 2021, um, it started out with the first district and then, you know, quickly within a few months expanded to, to four of the NLPD districts. So that was, that was the plan. And one of the questions I had when I started looking at, at the city's contract was how did this pilot go? Um, and I'd heard very little said about it publicly during these task force meetings. There was sometimes mention of it, but really no kind of full accounting for, for how these calls went. And you know, really the goal of it was to kind of gather data about these calls and to kind of determine the outcomes and how, how well they went and, and how many were coming in. But really, no one was presenting that data. So when I went back and looked at it, you know, you can go and get calls for service data and they have the numbers. And what it shows is that basically about 100 calls over the last year were routed to Metropolitan Human Services District. You know, to provide some context, the communications district estimates that that there's somewhere between like 3,000 and 6,000 calls from, from mental health crises every year. So this is a very, very small portion of the calls that were even being routed in the first place. And the reason for that is not entirely clear to me still, but there's also a question of, of, how, of 
how many of those calls were even responded to with uh, with a team of mental health professionals and what the outcomes were after that. And there's even less answers for that. Was there so, money attached to that pilot program, or do we not know about that? That's a good question. My understanding is that the city never signed any sort of CEA or, or anything with uh, Metropolitan or with the communications district. I'm trying to get clear on whether or not there was an agreement between the communications district and, and Metropolitan. But I think there's a, I think that capacity was does seem to have been an issue. But there doesn't seem to have been any accounting or, or reflecting on, on what was actually going on, on with these calls. So Dr. Jennifer Vegno basically said, she told me, it, it appears that very few of these calls were actually responded to by a behavioral health team, that most of them appeared to have been uh, handled over the phone, and that there's not really any, any, any data on, on what the ultimate outcomes of those calls were. So... Hold, I'm just trying to get, there's so many different. Yeah, sorry, that was, that was a lot. No, it's okay. There's RHD, which is the new company that's been contracted with by the city. And then there's MHSD, which was in charge of the pilot program. However, RHD does work with MHSD? That's right. Okay, so now. So RHD has, has held a contract with Metropolitan for years to respond to these calls that weren't previously being routed through 911. But then RHD also got this new contract with the city that will, you know, integrate them into the 911 calls. From my perspective, it seems like given that RHD had this, already was participating in this pilot program to some degree, they would have, they would have a base of knowledge to kind of move forward from. But what that... But that doesn't appear to be the case. It, oh. There is no sort of reporting or really comprehensive analysis of, of how this pilot program went. And, you know, I've asked RHD about it. I've asked Metropolitan for any data they have, and, as well as the communications district. And it just does not appear to, to um, exist. It's too bad that we... Uh didn't happen to see the, the selection committee meeting. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if they were getting points for pilot project experience when they were selected by the city purchasing mm. committee. Yeah, it's a really good question. Dr. Avegno, who I don't believe was actually on the selection committee, but said basically that they were selected independently of their uh, involvement in the pilot project. And when RHD presented to this task force, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, their kind of vision for, for what, how they're going to move forward, they didn't mention the pilot program at all. Um, it was, you know, not brought up, which I also thought it was, it was an interesting omission. Part of what my question was, was, you know, if this pilot didn't work out, what, what were the reasons? And from Metropolitan, what I've gotten is, is basically that one, not very many calls were being routed in the first place. And then the way that the calls were routed was that rather than transferring the calls directly, a 911 operator would basically take down information and transmit it to Metropolitan, who would then need to get back in touch with the person oh. who had called in the first place. And they yep. said that, that created a, re- a real problem um, in terms of trying to, to connect to the people who are having these crises. So... I don't believe that that is how this new program is going to work. They're going to so streamline it, maybe more. Yeah, my understanding is that, is that it's going to be more streamlined, and that the the 
RHD representatives will actually be sort of integrated into the 911 response system and, and will, you know, kind of take these calls directly from 911 operators and then handle them from there. But it's not entirely clear to me if this was an issue initially in the pilot program, why that wasn't, you know, immediately addressed or, or tried to be reconfigured to, so, so that it would work. Um, Dr. Avegno told me that basically it became pretty clear that this wasn't the model that they were going to want to use and that they mm. kind of shifted their focus toward the RFP process and, and toward getting, you know, a new contract in place that would be kind of a, a more robust and, and more holistic uh, a program. Nick, I want to get to this contract and the terms of this contract in a second. But going back to, to what's going on at the Orleans Parish Communications District, which is the 911 call center, which is not a, you know, not a city agency, just like MHSD is not a city agency. But, you know, both work with the city. So the way I would imagine something like this would go is OPCD is given, you know, a set of criteria as to what would, you know, constitute a, a mental crisis call. And, you know, uh, you know, depending on capacity, I guess, they would, they would take, you know, any call that fits, fits those criteria and route it. So were they choosing not to route calls? What, do, 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 I, 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 if, I, if I remember correctly, you've spoken to uh, Tyrell Morris over there, who's the head of OPCD. What did he have to say about it? And before you answer that, like, I was just going to piggyback and say, it sounds like a liability issue potentially, too, so I feel like it'd be hard to navigate, so. Yeah, they, I mean, so he told me that basically they have these international standards that they, they use when determining where, where to route a call. I mean, most basically, their goal is to route calls that they determine to be nonviolent and, and sort of low-risk calls to, um, to Metropolitan or, or RHD once the, the new program gets going. Um but he did, he did say that they were not routing as many calls as he felt they probably could. I think they, and the reasons for that are not entirely clear to me, whether or not it was the capacity at Metropolitan or, you know, some other, other reason. But yeah, it, it, it's a good question because there are these standards and I'm not exactly sure why it was that they, they decided not to um, route all of them. I've followed up. Uh, with the communications district, you know, I had a brief phone call um, before I'd gotten a good look at, at the data and I've, you know, followed up with, with questions about it and, and haven't really gotten any responses. Okay, so, you know, I guess now the city has a contract and, and you're being told that it's, you know, much more streamlined, they think it's going to be more effective. Uh, but on the other hand, I, and, and, and maybe you found out more about this since last we spoke, um, it looked to me like there was there was quite a lengthy ramp up ramp up period to actually get work going on this contract. What, what's going on there? So resources for human development says basically they need three months to to do recruitment and hire and hire leadership, and then you know five months to to kind of continue to do recruitment for their broader staff, and then do training and hope to get started in nine months. And this is a year-long contract, so right. if, they're started, if they're getting started in nine months, um, really they're only going to have three months of, of actual uh, implementation of these programs uh, before they either need to renew the contract or, or it runs out. And I brought this up to Dr. Vegno, and she basically said, you know, yeah. She said, we were hoping that, that it would be quicker, and we're still hopeful that it's 
it's going to, you know, kind of ramp up quicker. Um, she acknowledged that there's kind of uh, some pretty significant training that they need to be doing for these responders. But we'll see, and we'll see kind of what the next round, you know, when they re- renegotiate this contract or just decide to extend it, what sort of data they have to go with, what kind of information they're looking at if they've only been, been doing it for a few well, months. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Because every every city, you know, every city contract is a year long with uh, four one year options to uh, to extend without renegotiating. Um, so it seems like in this case, you've basically got a timeline that guarantees the company is going to get a, a second year because the city will not have enough data um, after the first year to determine its effectiveness. Yeah, I think that that's you know a real question and. Um, I haven't gotten any clear answers on, I guess I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. A, lot, a lot of things remain unclear, yeah, and, and that's totally fair. Nick, how transparent are they about what the goals are going to be, if they're measurable, and if they're going to share so those there metrics? Are, there are some pretty significant reporting requirements in the contract, and the... Um, the resources for human development will have to go before the city council, I think, quarterly and, and presents um, their their data. And I guess not just what, how many calls or what percentage of calls are being routed now to RHD, but what the outcomes are. Are they going to share that? RHD needs to basically report to the city the number of calls they receive the the response times and and whether or not they they responded in person or by the phone, and then also needs to kind of provide an accounting of, of what happened after that. So, uh, you know, if they were able to to kind of resolve the crisis uh, without transporting the person anywhere, or whether or not they needed to to make what they call a, a warm handoff to another agency mm. um, in order to provide care. So, you know, that could be a hospital for kind of crisis stabilization um, or sort of other other potential interventions that are necessary. So there are some, some relatively detailed reporting requirements in the contract that is, is consciously or, or not a correction to maybe some of what went wrong with the pilot and, and kind of the lack of information that, that we've seen um, come out of that. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Okay, finally, there are some changes afoot in the Lens newsroom. Marta and Charles, tell us what's going on. Yeah, um, I'm happy to announce that the Lens will have a new editor. This week, Marta Jusen, our longtime education reporter, who has, you know, has broken more important stories than I can count and is responsible for some of the lenses most well-known long-term investigations into what's going on in New Orleans public schools has been named interim editor Um, now uh, you know that would raise the question of what is happening to the current (laughs) editor so uh, this this decision was a was made as a result of a a career shift for me or you know not a career shift I'm, I'm staying in journalism and I'm staying in New Orleans and I am continuing to cover local news. I just will no longer be doing it for the lens as I have for the past nine years. Um, and uh, so uh, beginning uh, Monday, Monday, October 10th, I will uh, be starting my new job as uh, assistant managing editor of investigations at 
Verite News, which is a, a new nonprofit news outlet. Uh, I'm not, you know, we're, we're on the lens here, so I'm not going to plug them too much, but it's a new nonprofit news outlet in New Orleans, and I'm personally very excited about it. So, um, you know, I'm sad to be leaving the lens. I, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's been a great place to me. As I said, I've been here for nine years, the longest time I've ever stayed in a, in a, at a single place of employment. Uh, but I am, I'm thrilled to be handing things over to someone as capable as Marvin. Charles, you will be missed, and uh, we were lucky to have you for so long. You did incredible work, and Marta, I'm sure you're eager to take the reins. We're very excited for you, too. Uh, very much so. Um, I, I, you know, we have an incredible reporting staff, and I'm happy that we'll be moving forward with them. Um, obviously, bittersweet. Charles and I have been colleagues for, I think, eight years. <laughs> right. And you know, we were co-workers before he became the editor. Um and had, had done, he, you know, he's done a lot of incredible work here. Chief of what comes to mind is fake subpoenas and there so many other stories. And, um, you know, he was always a good mentor to me from little questions in the office to that one time, Charles, when we drove out to that IHOP in New Orleans East to interview that um, oh, right, dirt right. local. Because I was a Yeah, yeah. just the, one of those funny charter school stories. But, um... I would say definitely bittersweet. I'm very, very excited to take on the role and excited to work with this team. Um, but we're definitely going to miss Charles um, and look forward to what he's doing at Verite. And um, definitely excited he's staying in the city. And becoming uh, friendly competitors. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're going to take you down, Charles. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I'll be watching my back. Okay. I'll say I'm very, very excited for both of you. And also, yeah, very feel very lucky one to, to have had Charles as such a great editor, and you know, very excited to be to be working with Marta. So looking forward I, to uh, it. I'd like to echo those those sentiments. I think that was very well said, Nick, and uh, I, I I second that entirely. Well, thank you. For the last time, Charles, we'll say thank you so much for uh, your presence here on Behind the Lens, and good luck, and see you around. Well. Thank you very much, and I'm, I'm going to con continue listening even, even after I've left. So thanks to everybody, and, uh, you know, all of you have a good weekend. Okay, bye. Bye, guys. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krestel, Joshua Rosenberg, Marta Jusen, and for the last time, Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>